0: right, I invite you to turn to Hebrews 12. There'll be other singing all throughout the service as we go to the Lord's table. So you're just getting warmed up, okay? It's gonna get better and better on the singing. uh, And we're looking forward to being able to worship Christ. And sometimes, though, it's good to uh, be informed by the word before we sing and uh, think and consider Jesus in the word. So I invite you to turn to Hebrews 12 in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12, and I wanna just take the next 25 minutes or so to talk to you about the next paragraph in the book of Hebrews, which actually ends in such a powerful way that talking about the blood of Jesus. And I think it'll be a great meditation uh, for us here uh, this morning. Uh, we've been taking our time going through the book of Hebrews. Uh, to this point, uh, we uh, have gone through five major sections. Uh, these sections are all contain doctrine and then warning. And uh, we're in that fifth last section. Uh, section and we've finished out the doctrinal section and today we start the warning in this doctrinal treatment in Hebrews 11 and 12 the author has two primary messages or topics for us to consider in chapter 11 it was faith and he tells us what faith in Jesus Christ looks like uh, it, he shows us what it looks like in the lives and the decision and the courage of some old testament saints who were faithful in the decisions and the choices that they make. Then as you come to Hebrews chapter 12, the first 17 verses, what we've already covered, uh, the topic there is endurance. Endurance in your life for Jesus Christ. And uh, we learned that endurance, right at the beginning of chapter 12, it involves running. We run with endurance the race that is set before us. It involves looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, We've noted as well that endurance looks like submitting to our spiritual father and living. And then the last two weeks, we saw that endurance involves strengthening weak knees and feeble hands and straightening our path or our road so that uh, we will not be overcome in trials. It involves striving ahead in our walk with the Lord, and it also finally involved seeing to it seeing to it that as we're attempting to do these things in our Christian race, that we're looking around at other brothers and sisters in Christ and we're making sure that they're not responding improperly to the training that God has given to them. Uh, That we are looking that no one would fail to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness would spring up and trouble many causing defilement, and that no one is immoral or unholy. Uh, This is our challenge. This is the doctrinal section. But today we make it to the author's final strong warning. It has two parts, two paragraphs. In Hebrews chapter 12, the first part is verses 18 through 24. That's what we'll see today. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 25 through 29, the final part of the warning. The first part of this warning, he gives them information, verses 18 through 24. The second, he gives them imperatives or commands. Now, I imagine what the author is doing here is he's, he's appealing to adults, primarily, about the decision that they need to make to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You know, at every phase of parenting, I think that there are new lessons to learn. Carissa and I have been through many of those phases now and we're just entering into some where some of our children are becoming adults, young adults. You know, in in moments like this when parenting young adults, you try to make a case for something, right, a decision uh, about what they're doing before you call them to respond. You know, when they're smaller, you didn't have to do that as much you didn't make a case, you just like, you gave them the marching orders, right? But as they grow older, and especially as they become young adults, then you really wanna, you wanna make the best case that you can. Maybe it's about their occupation, what they would do with schooling. Uh, maybe it's about where they would go to live, a place to live. You, you, you make the case as a parent. You say, okay, these are all the considerations. Let me put them all on a piece of paper for you. Here are all of the reasons why you should do what I'm telling you. <laughs> You know, in every phase of parenting, you learn different lessons. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, here are all the reasons why maybe you should respond in this way. I think that's what the author of Hebrews is doing in this first paragraph. He's going to make a case that the new covenant ministry of Jesus is far superior to anything else. And then in verse 25 and verse 28, he will call them to respond. So today we just see his information, the case that he makes. I think the whole point that he's making in these verses is made by using a contrast in verses 18 through 24. You can see it if you just look for the words, you have come. Okay, it's stated in the negative in verse 18. It's stated in the positive in verse 22. So look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. Look at verse 22. But you have come. Okay, so the whole paragraph divides into two parts. He he entertains... Uh, first, what they have not come to. And he's he's really entertaining two contrasting alternatives here. He considers in verses 18 through 21, coming to Mount Sinai, where the Old Testament Israelites received the law of Moses. And then in verses 22 through 24, he considers coming to Mount Zion. And we'll learn more about that as well. And so let's consider first What he says about Mount Sinai, look with me at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message would be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Here, the author's first point is we have not come to Mount Sinai, a mountain that brings fear. The author has been describing, I think, the Christian life. Uh, throughout this section as a long-distance race or a journey on a road that we're making. And here he comes to the final destination, a mountain. And to help us consider the nature of the mountain that he wants us to think about, the author considers briefly the mountain that old covenant saints encountered when God gave them the law on Mount Sinai. He actually gives seven descriptions of this, and I think the point he's making is this was a terrifying, fearful scene in, for the Old Covenant saints in the Old Testament. And I think it's terif- terrifying because this is true always. This is always terrifying for sinful beings. It's terrifying for sinful beings to meet un- the unmediated holiness of a perfect God. Okay, so I want to look at these descriptions. Uh, The first way he describes this Old Testament mount is that which may be touched. That is, it is a mountain of this world that the Israelite people could touch. Later on, we're going to find out that they didn't. They didn't. And the author is going to say something about that. They didn't touch this mountain. They wanted no part of this mountain, but it was a mountain they could touch. The point here is that it was an earthly location. It was a physical location on this planet. To that, the author adds this, and they also came to a blazing fire. When God talked to Moses on Mount Sinai, the mountain looked like it was on fire. There were flames shooting up from the mountain and smoke that went up into the sky so that the fires went from the mountain itself the whole way up into the sky. People thought perhaps the the fire continued on and on and on. Added to this, he says, uh, with this blazing shooting fire was a storm that included, and you just keep reading the descriptions here, it included great darkness, gloom, and a tempest. That's what the ESV says, a tempest, which I think is probably in reference to a whirlwind. So here's the picture, right? Here's the picture, a, a, a blazing fire in the center surrounded by darkness and whirlwind and storms all around. The Old Testament narrative then explains in both Exodus and Deuteronomy that there was also the sound of a trumpet blast when God chose to meet with Moses on Mount Sinai. And that this trumpet blast, if you read the the Old Testament text, you find out that it rose in magnitude and volume as God continued talking with them. Okay, so it just gets louder and louder. But the most frightening thing, the final and climatic description the author of Hebrews makes about this first mountain is that they came to a voice that made its hearers beg. They they heard the sound of a voice from the heavens. And when the Israelites experienced all of these Wonderful things, magnificent things. Exodus 20, verse 19, tells us how they responded. This is what they said. You don't have to turn there, just listen. That verse says, and they, that's the children of Israel, said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not not let God speak to us lest we die. These people, when hearing the voice uh, from heaven, are afraid and they think they're going to die. And so they insist, they beg Moses, no more words from God. I think finally the author in verses 20 and 21 explains that the terrifying nature of this event was compounded by two other things. It was compounded by the statement that came from God. God said, if even a beast or an animal touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Okay, so that terrifies the Israelite people because they know that's not just true about beasts, that's true about us, the Israelite people. And it went even far deeper than that for the next statement he says was that uh, this impacted also Moses, their leader. Moses was terrified by Mount Sinai. Now, we've already learned some things about Moses in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 3, for instance, we learned Moses was a very faithful person. He was a meek man. He was faithful. It says, over all of God's house to testify to the things that would be spoken later. But here, the author of Hebrews concedes that even Moses couldn't remain calm and confident in the presence of God. I just want to stop and think about this for a moment. I, I think this is a, a sad testimony to the old covenant system. For even their leader was frightened and terrified. Okay, The old covenant system did make it possible to have occasional encounters with God, like this one on Mount uh, Sinai. But it was not a moment that made you feel warm and Fuzzy on the inside. You didn't leave Mount Sinai saying, "Boy, that was some great worship." I, I just feel like I was just uplifted, exalted. No, you left there frightened and terrified. You left quaking in fear. And so that's the fearful experience of, of, of God. Is what Israel knew in the old covenant period. It was a mountain that brought fear. However, the, the author says we have not come to that mountain. We have come to a mountain that brings joy. Look with me in verse 22. It's one of my favorite sections of Hebrews. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Here again, the author of Hebrews piles up descriptions, this time to describe a mountain that brings joy to his readers. You can feel, I think you can like feel the author's rhetorical flair as he crafts this word of exhortation. Crafts this original epistle, I think, which maybe was intended to replace a sermon in their Sunday worship. As he crafts this and he gets to the end, he, he reaches the climax. It's, as he piles up these eight descriptions, you can see them in most English Bibles by looking for the word two. So if you're looking down in your Bibles again at verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to innumerable angels, to the assembly of the firstborn. And he continues, you've come to these eight places, these eight things. And so we'll just look very briefly at them. His first description of our destiny is you have come to Mount Zion. Now, when the scriptures use the term Mount Zion, uh, it is uh, something that uh, happens on many occasions. I did a study of Mount Zion the last few weeks. I knew, I saw it was coming. And so I started studying these texts and I found out that the, the the phrase, the words Mount Zion are used 159 times in the Old Testament scripture, seven times in the New Testament. And I think that because of the enormous biblical data regarding Zion, that it poses a very difficult concept to grasp. I first started studying this years ago in my doctoral studies. And so I, I just want today give you just a few conclusions I've reached about Mount Zion. It appears to me first that this term can be used to describe either an earthly or a heavenly location. So when you come across Mount Zion in your Bible, it might be an earthly location or a heavenly location. Let's talk first about the earthly. The very first occurrence of the the term uh, of the word Zion occurs uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Okay, you don't have to read there, but you can write down this reference, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. That text says this: It says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion that is called the city of David. There were some people intimidating and taunting David, saying that he would not have the ability to take this stronghold of Zion. Of course, David rises up to the challenge, and verse 9 says, and, and David lived in the stronghold, and he called it the city of David. That's where he made his home. Again, a little bit later on, we can see that Zion is a physical location in the book of First Kings, First Kings 8 and verse 1. I'll read it to you. It says, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, to bring up the ark of the covenant uh, of the Lord out of the city of David, and listen to these last three words, the city of David, which is Zion. Okay? So there are many, many texts in your Bible that use the word to describe a physical location on this earth, Jerusalem, or sometimes even more narrowly to describe the Temple Mount, the place where the Jews worshiped Yahweh. As a matter of fact, some of our elderly congregation here may have grown up singing a song about Zion based on Psalm 48. This might date you a bit if you know this song. Don't worry, I won't sing it. The Psalms two verses say this, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful in situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Now, how many of you know a song with those two verses? Okay, that dates you. Kids, the teens, young people just, I actually know it, so I'm, I'm somewhere among you. Perhaps you're like me, when you sang this song, you didn't really know about what Zion you were singing about. In that psalm, Psalm 48, the sons of Korah rejoice in the security and the beauty of the earthly Zion, the city of Jerusalem. They say, because God is with them, and they they name him the God of war, because the God is with them there in Zion, no king or nation can be a threat to us. Okay, so men and women, it's obvious in many texts of Scripture, Old New Testament speaking about earthly location, Jerusalem or the Temple Mount. But somewhere along the way, the term Zion also became used of a heavenly location as well. For instance, just consider what some of the Psalms say about Zion. Psalm 9 and verse 11 says this, It's to sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Okay, so the author there is saying, sing praises to God who's seated and is enthroned in this place called Zion. I think it's describing a heavenly Zion. Psalm 50, verses 1 and 2. The author says, the mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. In the psalmist says, God is shining forth from a location. It's out of Zion. He calls it the perfection of beauty. I think he's describing a heavenly Zion. Perhaps more important to the author of Hebrews, this text is used in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. Remember, he quotes Psalm 110 over and over in this book. That psalm starts out this way. The Lord, that's God, says to my Lord, that's Jesus. David is talking about uh, uh, something that God would say in the future to his son Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, listen to what God says, sit at my right hand. Where's that? It's heaven. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord God will send forth from Zion your mighty scepter ruling in the midst of your enemies. Much later as well, men and women, in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, he sees a vision of 144 witnesses who were martyred during the tribulation period, and John sees them standing before the Lamb, before the throne, and he calls that location Mount Zion. Revelation 14 and verse 1. And so men and women, Zion can speak of a heavenly location or an earthly one. I think a common theme regarding Zion, regardless of whether it's talking about the earthly or the heavenly Zion, is that the term talks about the place where God dwells, where God lives. I think this probably explains why authors of the scripture uh, could not only describe heaven as Zion, but also the temple mount where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt for many years. But to make things really clear, going back to Hebrews 12 in this text, the author tells his readers, he gives them two other names uh, to refer to the Zion he's talking about. Look down in your Bible. He says, uh, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So although Mount Zion can refer to a physical location on earth, it's obvious the author intends it here to speak about heaven, the throne room of God. One commentator picked up on this, just in case you don't think, you think I'm like making this up uh, he said this way, he said, "The Old Testament Jewish traditions, uh, they hoped for a restoration of the earthly city, but Hebrews focuses on the heavenly one." That's especially true here. Hebrews is focusing on the heavenly Zion. Okay, and with this metaphor, I think the author is describing things a little bit differently than some of the other authors of the New Testament would, but both are true. Many of the other New Testament authors, they describe it this way: Jesus is going to come from heaven to save and deliver his people. But it's also true that believers will go to heaven, right? We will also go to Mount Zion. And that's what he's emphasizing here. Next, the author shifts from a description of the location. He's described it three ways. Mount Zion, city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. He, he shifts then to the life that is on this mountain. This is really cool. This mountain that is our destiny is teeming with life with living beings, and the life on this mountain is greater than any life on any mountain this world has ever seen, okay? So he starts by portraying these living beings. He gives five descriptions of who's there. He says, first, with, uh, with angels, and notice how he describes them. You're coming to, to innumerable angels. The word innumerable means great thousands or myriads of angels, Reading one author this week, and I think he had a great point. He said, Throughout the scripture, if you see singular angels by themselves doing tasks, it's something God has sent them to do. But anytime you see a multitude, many thousands of angels together, it's a mark of the presence of God. Okay, so as we're considering this final destiny. For the author's readers, he says, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels, and then he says, in festal gathering. And I think his only point with that phrase is that, you know, there are countless angels in one large celebration, one joyful assembly. I think it's at this point that we begin to realize that first mountain, that was fear and terror and dread. This mountain is joy. This mount, this mount Zion, whatever it is in heaven, it's going to be a joyful thing. There are myriads of angels in joyful celebration. Alongside the host of angels in, in, this one, in their one joyful gathering is the next phrase he gives. He says, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who's this? Who's the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven? It's a tough one, right? I think we just look at the words. First, the word assembly. That is a word that is normally translated in the epistles as the church. And it speaks of the church as a gathering or an assembly. I think that that's what the author of Hebrews has in mind here. I think he's talking about the church. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who since Jesus' resurrection have put their faith in him alone for their salvation. Okay, so this is the church, I think. Note, it says the assembly, and then continue reading, of the firstborn. Well, what is that? What does that mean, the church of the firstborn? Do you have any idea? You study this this week? You say this before? What's a church of the firstborn? That's not a name for a church that you hear very often. Perhaps you've heard of the, a church name, the church of the firstborn. I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard it. I've heard a lot of names before. I've heard some really bad church names before. I've never heard this one, the church of the firstborn. What is it? Well, while that might initially appear confusing, I think we should just keep it simple. And we should just read one of the only other occurrences of the word firstborn in Hebrews. Put back to Hebrews 1, verse 6. What's the church of the firstborn? Look at Hebrews 1 and verse 6. And again... When he, that's God, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. That text is very obvious who the firstborn is. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That text is used in a singular form. He's the firstborn. In our text, in Hebrews 12, the church of the firstborn, firstborn is plural. And so I think the point he's making is is that we are the group or gathering of people who identify ourselves with the firstborn one. We are the church of the firstborn ones. But then he also continues here. we, We are also, then you see the next phrase, we are the ones who are enrolled in heaven. The word enrolled could be translated written or registered. I think the language suggests here a heavenly book with our names in it. I Perhaps I'm running a little bit out of time here to talk to you about all of the passages that talk about the Lamb's book of life in the New Testament scriptures. But the point I would make here is this passage is describing gatherers in the name of the firstborn one as those who have their names written in a heavenly book. So the author, I think here with this phrase, the assembly of the firstborn, those who are enrolled in heaven, is speaking of perhaps those in the church who are, who are already in heaven on this heavenly Mount Zion. To this, the next being on Mount Zion is God. And he is rightly called here the judge of all, the judge of all. He's a judge of all men and women who will ever live in this world. He's a judge of the living and the dead. God is the judge of the righteous and the wicked. With God, there's another group listed here. It's the spirit of the righteous made perfect. Do you see that in your Bible? To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. If that first statement, the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven wasn't confusing. What is this, right? What are the spirits of the righteous made perfect? Is this in reference to the church as well? If so, why would he mention us twice there on Mount Zion? Uh, I think it's someone different than the church. And I'll try to just quickly demonstrate that to you. But by the way, I don't think most of the commentaries are helpful here at all. They just kind of gloss right over this. Ones who do comment on it think that this is the faithful from the Old Testament and the New Testament together in one group, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I disagree with them. I think the key to understanding that phrase uh, are the words made perfect. And the way you can check this is to look at the last time you saw those words in Hebrews. Go to the end of chapter 11, the end of Hebrews 11. Remember, Hebrews 11 was a survey of faithful people from Genesis to Malachi. It was a survey of Old Testament saints who put their faith in God. Notice what the author says about those people in verses 39 and 40. It says, and all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had promised something better for us. Who's us? The church. That apart from us, they, who's they? Old covenant saints. Apart from us, they could not be made perfect. You see, The Old Testament faithful were were waiting to be made perfect until someone would come who would bring something better for us, the text says. That someone is Jesus and what he brought was the new covenant of grace. Grace. And so in this phrase, back in chapter 12, when the author says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect in heaven, it's the author's way of saying the faithful Old Testament saints finally got it. They were complete, made perfect, joining the life around the heavenly mountain. Okay, so to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, Old Testament saints also gathering on this Mount Zion. And of course, the only way that either the church or Israel, faithful Israel, enters or enjoys Mount Zion can be found in the author's next description. You see what else he says we come to? He says to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. The author's already told us all about Jesus and all about his new covenant. But now he's, he's bringing his final part of his sermon or his word of exhortation to a, a rushing climax. And so he mentions Jesus again. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Have we described this life around the throne and the location of the throne? The author is nearing the end, and there's only one last thing for him to say about this mountain, and it is awesome. It is awesome, men and women. What else does he say? We look for the next two statement. And two: the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Running short of time, let me say two things about this. First, notice the author compares this blood to the blood of Abel. The author started this whole last section with Abel in chapter 11 and verse 4. When he was talking about faith, he starts with Abel and he closes with Abel here just holds the whole section together. Can't you see just the amazing beauty of the, the word of God by the Holy Spirit of God? Starts with Abel, ends with Abel. But something even more powerful. Notice that the real point of this passage is made through a metaphor. The author personifies something. He personifies blood and he has it speaking here. You see that? Blood is speaking, so it's an arguing blood. It's an articulate blood. What a strange picture. Yet it's powerful. To understand what the author' is doing here? You need to know that he, he knows the Old Testament. OK. Do you remember when uh, God confronted Cain about killing his brother? You remember that? First murder in the Bible. Human murder there? God confronts Cain about killing his brother. Remember what God said? He asked him a question and then he makes a statement. He goes to Cain after the murder of his brother and he says, what have you done? Then he says this, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. God was saying that Abel's blood, in a metaphorical way, was speaking to him and was demanding justice in this case. Yet men and women, there is a blood that speaks a better word than that. What do we know about this blood in this text? Is the author tells us that it's blood that's been sprinkled. Again, a metaphor for the blood of Jesus sprinkled on an altar for the sins of those people who would follow him, there is also a blood that speaks, but this blood demands forgiveness. And so men and women, boys and girls, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, trusting in his work alone for your deliverance from your sins, you have come to a blood that argues for you. For your forgiveness. I think the author designs this passage so that you would fall in love with the blood of Jesus. The blood that provides the only argument that God will listen to for the forgiveness of sins. You know the old song, right? What can wash away my sins? The answer comes nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There was an old hymn written by Charles Wesley entitled, Arise, My Soul, Arise. It's hard to do better than some of these old, old, old hymns written in 16 and 1700s. Listen to the third verse of Wesley's hymn. Five bleeding wounds he bore, received on Calvary. You know the the meaning of that? He's talking about the wounds that Jesus received on the cross. Five bleeding wounds he bore, received on Calvary. They, the wounds, pour out effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me, Wesley says. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. Verse 4, the father hears him pray, his dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. Listen to this phrase. His spirit answers to the blood. I think Wesley imagines a conversation between the Holy Spirit of God and the blood of Jesus. And so we keep seeing the song. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer, what? You wake? No longer? fear. See, Mount Zion doesn't fill those who believe in Jesus Christ with fear and terror the way Mount Zion did. No, it fills us with joy. So that when we're before the throne, of God, Satan brings accusation against us one day, what about his gossip? What about his slander and bitterness and idolatry or jealousy? Or what about all those fits of anger with his wife or his family or his kids? God will say this, I will remember his sins and lawless deeds no more. No more. That's Mount Zion. If at that moment we tremble and think before God, this consuming God, we think, what about my impurity, my sensuality, my lust, my envy, all of my drunkenness? The answer comes out from the altar, the blood that speaks a better word than Abel's. You are forgiven. You're good. It's all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for what you've told us here about Mount Zion. You've told us about all of the life that will be there in the heavenly Jerusalem, the destiny of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And I thank you how this text ends, that what it means for us is we'll, we'll come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, Than the blood of Abel's. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. One day they too will see God, and it will be fear and dread and a consuming fire. Lord, I pray that today they would trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. I pray that you would work in their heart to show them that they are a sinner who cannot stand in the presence of unmediated holiness, God. And that they need a savior. They need someone to rescue them. I pray for anyone here who's never believed that Jesus Christ came into this world, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again to break the power of sin, if someone has never believed in the name of Jesus today and repented of their sins, that they would do that now. That they would see, this this is not something to mess around with. God without Jesus brings fear. Even Moses trembled. But God with Jesus brings joy. Innumerable angels in a joyful gathering. The assembly of the firstborn one Assembly of the firstborn one who are enrolled in heaven, registered there in a book. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks for them. I pray that they would trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.